Hi everybody, this is Mick Sullivan, the host and creator of The Past and the Curious. Welcome to this special bonus episode. It's not a full episode, but it's pretty close. It's inspired by people who have awesome names. There's a lot of awesome names in history, so we'll probably do some more bonus episodes similar to this one. Before we get started, I want to remind you to subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, or reach out to us and let us know that you're listening. Well, 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 if it isn't you again, thanks for listening. So here's the deal. There's little in the world that gets us excited as an awesome name. Whether it's a moniker with a musical ring or a cleverly creative cognomen, or even an exciting elaborate epithet, the best ones will never fail to grab our attention. And when one does, we can't help but dive in and learn about what that person's life was like. It should come as no surprise that the past is littered with people boasting amazing names. And with every name comes a story. This bonus episode is our first installment of Curious Names, in which we pick some of the most unusual, fantastic, and choicest names from the past. We'll share them along with some of that person's story. We've got two for this episode, so enjoy. And if anyone out there is expecting a new baby in the family, well, perhaps you'll find the perfect name over these next few minutes. For our first curious name, we take you to the early years of the American Revolution. We'll travel from what were the colonies of Georgia to Pennsylvania and back, and you'll meet a proud man with a valuable autograph and a name that might have been more befitting a tailor. And he might have lived longer had he pursued that as a career. For the generations of people around the American Revolution, a person's honor was of the utmost importance. If one's honor was insulted, it could regularly result in a duel, a violent contest between two disagreeing parties. President Andrew Jackson, he fought in several duels. Abraham Lincoln narrowly avoided one. And of course, the subject of everyone's favorite musical based on a historic American figure, Alexander Hamilton, well, he had his brilliant life ended early on the misty shores of Weehawken, New Jersey, because of a duel with Aaron Burr. The people we often call the Founding Fathers, they were obsessed with their honor, which is why when they decided to declare independence from Great Britain, and they swore to mutually pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors to each other, it was a really big deal because everything was on the line. You see, they knew that if the American Revolution failed, they would be found guilty of treason to the King of England, which means they would ultimately find themselves swinging from a noose. Gulp. There were people in all of the colonies who felt this way, and then there were many who didn't. Americans have never agreed on everything. But still, in 1776, people from each colony decided to get together to hear each other's thoughts, ideas, and concerns about breaking with the crown of England, and to make plans to see what would happen from there. But as you may know, all of the colonies, all 13 of them, the ones that would become the first 13 states, well, they could be found all along the east coast of America, along the ocean. 
So as a refresher, before we go any further, let's recite all 13 of them. Let's say from north to south. Ready? All 13 colonies from north to south. Ready? Go. Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Good work. You got 100%, right? Okay, let's do it again, double speed. One, two, three, Georgia, South Carolina. Just, just kidding. Now, if you look at all of those 13 colonies, future states on a map, you'll see most of them touch the Atlantic Ocean. But perhaps, since Pennsylvania was the only one without Atlantic Ocean beachfront property, the rest of the colonies, well, they probably felt bad for its citizens and let them host the first meeting of the Continental Congress. Actually, no, that's, that's not true. It's more likely they did so because Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was an important city that was centrally located for the travelers coming from all 13 colonies spread out along the coast. The choice wasn't the most convenient for the people traveling from Georgia, and the three representatives from that southernmost colony sure had a long way to go to make it to this meeting, the meeting where they'd call themselves a congress and claim not to have a king any longer. Well, one of those three Georgia guys had a curious name indeed. Button Gwinnett, he was. B-U-T-T-O-N-G-W-I-N-N-E-T. Button Gwinnett. And though he lived most of his life in England, he was actually a very staunch supporter of American independence. On July 2nd, 1776, he voted for that independence. And on July 4th, he voted to pass the Declaration. And on August 2nd, he became one of the 56 people to sign that famous parchment of paper. By the way, most people signed it in August. John Hancock and that big old signature he wrote on there? Well, he was the only one to sign it on July 4th, believe it or not. Anyway, not long afterwards, Old Button, he went back to Georgia to help prepare for the war. And it was a war that was going to last many years. However, a dispute of honor would end the life of Button Gwinnett before he could ever learn the outcome. On May 16, 1777, he was shot in a duel with a man, eh, sort of curious name himself, a man named Lachlan McIntosh. Because of that duel, Gwinnett's story ends abruptly and quite early in his potential life. It seems really silly now, doesn't it? Shouldn't two grown men be able to settle their differences without violence? We think so, but matters of honor were much different in this day and age. Being the young casualty of a duel, here's the most curious thing about Button Gwinnett. His signature might be the most valuable signature in the world to autograph collectors. Now, some people might argue that William Shakespeare gets that honor. We'll let you sort that out. We don't have a dog in the fight. In any case, there are only 51 copies of Button Gwinnett's signature known to exist, and most of them are on IOUs. Because he died young and he didn't write as many letters as most of the other signers of the Declaration, well, there just aren't many of his signatures out there. And to make matters worse, he had very little family to preserve his documents, which sadly could have been easily lost or destroyed. Because of this, 
collectors today are willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a copy of Button Gwinnett's John Hancock. To give you a bit of perspective, Elvis Presley, his autograph has been valued at $5,500, and Napoleon Bonaparte's at $7,800. There was a photo of the Beatles signed by all four musicians, and it recently sold for $43,000. By comparison, Button Gwinnett's autograph has sold for over $722,000. That's over 16 times as valuable as all four signatures of the Fab Four. So the next time you go to the attic, look and see what you got. Mexico, they say. Come all the way from Texas, just looking for a place to stay, just looking for a home, just looking for a home. The farmer said to the weevil, I see her on the square. The bull weevil said to the farmer, I got my whole darn family here, just looking for a home. We're just looking for a home. And the farmer says to the weevil, well, why'd you pick my farm? The bull weevil said to the farmer, I ain't gonna do much harm, just a looking for a home, just a looking for a home. But then the bull weevil said to the farmer, you better sell your old machines. When I'm through with your cotton, you can't even buy gasoline, just looking for a home, I'm just looking for a home. And then the bull weevil said to the farmer, I'd like to wish you well. But the farmer said to the bull weevil, I wish you'd go to another home, another home. The Renaissance is a period of time in Europe which happened between the Middle Ages and the modern era. The idea is that, among other things, during the Middle Ages, which happened a long, long time ago, there wasn't a lot of learning happening, nor art being created and shared. Which isn't really true at all, but that's what people have come to believe. By comparison, the Renaissance, we'll say from the 1300s to the 1600s, was a period when people were more able to focus on knowledge, science, art, medicine, and more. The result is a period of time that, when we look back, is full of creativity and important discoveries. If you ever go to an art museum, compare the medieval art to the Renaissance and you'll begin to get an idea of the cultural change. But today, we use the word Renaissance to describe a cultural rebirth, a time when a society places great value on the arts and sciences, usually following a period when these things were not as valued, or maybe a time when they couldn't focus on these things because they were more focused on fundamental things, like simply surviving. Well, a famous renaissance happened in America, too, specifically in New York in the 1920s. Shortly before this renaissance, many African Americans who lived in smaller cities and towns and even rural farms, often in the South, they flocked to big cities in something known as the Great Migration. There were many reasons for all of these people to pack up and leave for the big cities, one reason is that an enormous bug infestation happened, and millions of boll weevils destroyed the cotton crops of the South, which left many people without a way to make money. In the big cities, on the other hand, there were new factories opening and creating job opportunities for many new workers, so you can see why many of them moved. But also, 
Many of these people who faced racism nearly constantly in the South at this point, well, they were the first generations after the end of slavery to have opportunities for college educations and more. So they followed those opportunities to Chicago and New York and other major cities. In New York, one of the neighborhoods populated by many of these newcomers was the borough of Harlem. If you're curious to know where that is, you can look on a New York City map and you'll find Harlem on the island of Manhattan, just north of Central Park. And in Harlem, a movement developed as many of the recent arriving African Americans focused on creating, developing, and preserving their art, literature, music, and all of those other things that are the things that make our lives better. Today, we call it the Harlem Renaissance, and it was when people like Langston Hughes and Duke Ellington changed the world. And one woman, who has a purely beautiful name, did her part as well. Zora Neale Hurston. Her name sounds like music. Zora Neale Hurston was a powerful woman, and her creativity stretched from theater to poetry to novels to folk tales and beyond. Originally, she was born in Florida, and her parents were both enslaved and freed after the Civil War. Her father went on to be the mayor of her town, which was a town that was created and populated entirely by former slaves and their families. While she was there, she heard lots of folk tales that had been passed on as tradition by word of mouth. Those stuck with her as she moved north, going to schools in Baltimore and New York, before long, her intelligence and the strength of her writing got her noticed. She received a coveted grant from the Guggenheims, who was a family that created the famed museum that's in New York City today. This grant, which was an award of money given so the winner could really focus on an artistic work, was for her to travel back through the South. She would meet the locals and hear their traditional folk stories, the ones that were most important to them. Her goal was to create a collection of these tales so, one, they could be enjoyed by people who'd never get to hear them otherwise, but also so that they didn't get lost to time. These stories were of the oral tradition, which is what it's called when a group of people tell stories to their younger generation, and those, in turn, tell it to their younger generation when they grow older. This keeps the stories alive. But what if a story is forgotten, or people stop telling it, or worse, what if the stories die with the people? People's stories need to live on for all time. And if we forget them, we forget the past and the people who got us here. Zora heard stories dating back as far as 500 years and heard them from anyone with a story to tell. Prisoners, farmers, old women, young men, miners and maids. It's because of her work and the similar work of others that we can go back and learn directly from many of the people who have come before us. But she was involved in another thing that got us really excited. A friend of Zora's, a woman named Sarah Lee Creech, approached her about a project. Sarah had seen two young African-American girls playing with a doll, but the doll, like all dolls of the time, had light skin and European features. It looked nothing like the girls who were playing with it. This struck Sarah as sad, and she knew Zora would agree. Nearly all children love dolls, and every child should have the opportunity to have a doll that looks like him or her. It was unfair that these girls, just two of millions in the country, did not, and it was because there was no such doll. 
So Sarah approached several people, including Zora Neale Hurston, whose fame and connections to powerful people went a long way towards making the dream of the first real African-American doll a reality for children. Before long, the creation of the Sarah Lee doll, as it was called, was championed by people like Eleanor Roosevelt and others. In the 1950s, a company called the Ideal Toy Company produced the Sarah Lee doll for the children of America. And the Ideal Toy Company was located in Brooklyn, New York, just across the river from Harlem and the figures of the Harlem Renaissance. When Sarah Lee Creech, Zora Neale Hurston, and the thousands of other folks moved into the neighborhood for jobs in community and art, there was no African-American doll. Before long, because of their influence, there was. And it was made right next door. you got to love a great name. Got to love a great name. Great name. Got to love a great name. You got to love a great name. That was absurd. Third. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed. We'll be back in early December with a new episode, a full episode. And it will... I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'll tell you what, who we're going to have. We're going to have three of my favorite women in the entire world. You're going to hear a story read by Kelly Moore. You're going to hear a story read by my friend Amber Estes Thieneman. And you're going to hear a story... Nope. Take that back. You're going to hear a song sung by Suki Anderson. So keep an eye on your podcast feed. For Past and the Curious, episode, I think it'll be 17. Holy cow. It's going to be a good one. See you then.